Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, Oceania's 16th most popular basement anabolic steroid research laboratory and production facility. This episode is on Sun and Steel, written by Yukio Mishima and published in 1968, two years before the author's death. It's a book about self-discovery through bodybuilding, about what constitutes a beautiful life and a beautiful death, about the relationship between an author, words, interiority and the external world. It's wonderful. And what of the man who wrote Sun and Steel? Yukio Mishima was born Kimitaki Hiroyoka in Tokyo City, the Empire of Japan, in 1925. Writing novels, poetry and plays, as well as starring in films and modelling, Yukio's dissatisfaction with the direction of post-World War II Japan grew as he aged, fearing that Japan's pacifism and increasing westernisation threatened to rob its citizens of their Japanese essence, leaving them rootless and hollow. For the purposes of protecting Japan from cultural degeneration, Yukio formed the Shield Society in 1968, a group of university students who were trained in martial arts and participated in group exercise under the watchful eye of Yukio himself. Their numbers were, at most, around 100, and in 1970, four members of the Shield Society, along with Yukio, wrote traditional death poems and visited Camp Ichigaya, a military base in Tokyo, part of the command of the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. Here, they tied up the Commandant and made him call the troops to gather in a courtyard. Yukio delivered a speech to them, imploring them to overthrow Japan's pacifist constitution and reinstate the Emperor as a god. Answered with jeers, Yukio performed seppuku, having built what he considered a beautiful body and destroying it by his own hand. So, if you want to hear more about what motivated a celebrated author to launch an abortive coup and perform ritual suicide, then listen on. Enjoy. <laughs> We're here to talk about We're some here to talk about muscles. Mishima, motherfucker. Big muscles. <laughs> muscles and so, big muscles. Uh, uh, leathery, sun-tanned, Japanese imperialism, ripped abs, Japanese imperialism, an honourable death, and uh, a beautiful death. Existentialism, as it relates to, as it relates to art and a chiselled body. Body. So, I expected this book sun to be Japanese bap, but it's not, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. I was. So much of this book resonated with me so much. I really, really enjoyed this book. <laughs> it's such a good book. <laughs> just goes to show our bias. We're just like, yeah, how fucking good is, is Sun and Steel? <laughs> both. So for, for background, Jack and I studied together when we were younger. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things that we did was we uh we also went to the gym together so we spent a lot of time just and we studied human bioscience so we'd spend a lot of time just like i don't know studying anatomy or physiology <laughs> and, then, and then going to the gym and then the, the, putting it into practice and being uh just total gym bros like protein shakes and pre-workout and <laughs> all that shit I don't think you did too much of the pre-workout stuff. It was so <laughs> good. Stuff was in, I like crack cocaine. I loved the gym <laughs> so much. Yeah, one of when um one of my friends was it in the good old days in, before in Jack, school, Jack when was, um when Jack three D got banned or Jacked, spelt with a three. The the pronunciation did Jacked. 
Jack. When it got banned yeah, for cont- <laughs> containing an amphetamine like amphetamine, substance, he bought a bunch of it that, <laughs> that he used to study ephedrine? with. Ephedrine? He'd have a scoop. It had ephedrine. It? Yeah. his study pre workout. <laughs> yeah, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking big. Just, just, just get pumped up. <laughs> Oh, so funny. <laughs> Do you remember? I won't say yeah, any of their names, but there was uh, awesome. one of the guys in the year above us. It just had like access to just so many prescription drugs. <laughs> just like taking all this shit and then like going to the gym and getting pumped. <laughs> he was, he was got he using Clem because he wanted to was using, lose a few kilos, was wasn't he? He was on Clem. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking He was on Clen. I don't think he was on anything anabolic, but I know. Nerdy electrical that engineer just getting, he was getting massive. sweats. <laughs> he got really shredded. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, the gym culture. This back is something that Yukio Machine would do. Those were the days, with. man. <laughs> so so approved and uh, at, at our university we had uh, access to like powerlifting equipment and stuff it was so fucking good there was a powerlifting club oh so, man it was so good you got you got into powerlifting didn't you you joined the yeah. club or something the only reason i stopped was was because my knees couldn't handle it it's too fucking too heavy yeah my knees couldn't take oh. it oh. i wore three now cartilage on the back to, of both my kneecaps you have to so i can't run a lot Oh, I really shouldn't laugh. Sorry. Yeah, I run a lot into. I run a lot. It's a tragedy. No, it sucks. Stuff, but I do miss powerlifting. I really miss powerlifting. Yeah, the, you're I really good at it sport. as well. Um, just, in no way good yeah, for you. It's really brutal on your body. <laughs> it's so fun though. Because you were getting um, you were getting very strong before you um, before you started having like the chronic knee stuff. Anyway, so sun and, sun and steel. Yes, very good book. What did you think going into it before we started it? What What were your thoughts before, uh, like going into it? As I said, I thought it'd be like Japanese BAP, because th- this book had been recommended to us a lot. Besides, maybe Mein Kampf, which I, t- just, I don't really want to do. This might be the Has most. Has Mein Kampf been book, recommended, or the most requested oh. book? I haven't seen any recommendations. Maybe I have missed it. Yeah. Maybe I missed those recommendations from Minecraft. <laughs> there, are, there are a few that keep getting... It's Sun and Steel, Minecraft, The Turner Diaries. Um, there's something by Junger. Um, I can't remember the name, but him talking about how good war is. But uh, this was this is the think, only um, one of the things that were regularly Sodom? requested. Ni- that 90 Days of Sun. I felt... 120 Days of Sodom, I think, has been requested one or two times. I'm reading at the moment, and it's just not good. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's really boring. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, and just the, the amount oh, my, of child um... rape in it is, it's the combination of boring plus Whoa. plus child rape. Um, it fucking sucks. <laughs> it's just a shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sun and Steel is not that, though. It's the story I... So, Yukio Mishima was a really fiction a story, writer. He was like born in Japan. In, in, yeah. So, much, much of what he wrote was fiction. He also wrote a lot of plays and was really celebrated as both a novelist and a playwright. And he was... I, I guess you'd call him a public figure in Japan. 
He was a public figure in Japan, but particularly in the West, because he knew a great deal about Western history and philosophy and literature. And so he was quite popular. I think he was quite hard to get an interview with as a Western journalist, but he was sought after. And as his life went on, he turned away from his fascination with Western thought because he felt it to be empty and purely materialist and consumerist and became increasingly more enamoured of traditional Japanese values and philosophy. And this book, this was this book was written later in his life when that process was underway. He eventually he formed the the Shield Society, a group of young men who exercised together and did military style drills forced their way into a, a garrison of the Japanese Defence Force and assembled the soldiers. And then he delivered this speech um, imploring them to rise up against the Japanese pacifist constitution, remove US soldiers from Japan, restore the emperor to the position as of a, of a living god. And then he committed ritual suicide. He committed seppuku and then I think he had a second who beheaded him after he, he jammed a, a sword into his guts. I do have to say, I do have a, quite a degree of respect for the sort of man who can commit suicide by severing his abdominal aorta with a sword. That is, that's kind of cool. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> so did he kill himself at, at, the, at the speech event? Yeah, he spoke, he... Um, he delivered his speech and apparently the crowd started jeering at him and he said something like, I don't think they heard me and then retreated to a, a locked room and he carried out seppuku and then had his second behead him. Wow, what the fuck? <laughs> and because a lot... In this book, he talks about ritual suicide or suicide while your body is still beautiful it foreshadows his death quite a lot it i'm not sure whether he had that specific plan in mind while he was writing this book but he was clearly thinking about suicide to destroy a beautiful body and he did it he actually carried it out <laughs> this this book is not just talk he actually went and did many of the things that he talks about in this book where has the spirit of the samurai gone in terms of the structure of this book it's it it's structured in a pretty interesting way it's 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 not quite an essay it's not quite a novel it's not quite a memoir it's this strange thing that kind of sits across all three genres but is not entirely part of any of them yeah waxing philosophical sort of memoir yeah because it, it does it really interesting yeah because it's structured to be yes yeah, something of a memoir in that it seems to take place chronologically it details his his movement from being a young boy who only knew how to live through words and had no no embodiment almost or no embodied presence in the world to a person who learned to live purely through their body in a de-individualized way as part of a group 
engaging in group exercise and so oriented towards death. So fascinating, isn't it? So this is the sort of book where there'll be things in it which I don't understand because it's also quite poetic. And there are certain things he said that I thought, I actually just don't know what you're talking about. But even those things were beautifully written, so it doesn't worry me. The book's very short. This is one of the few books I've ever read where I think... Like 80 pages? You, you probably couldn't make it much shorter. Uh, the length is not a problem. He doesn't waste words. It's quite dense. And just just the strangeness of reading a book where he's basically, in at least many parts of it, offering a... It's, it's almost offering a philosophical justification for bodybuilding like for, for going to the gym and getting ripped he's <laughs> offering so good. the philosophical justification for why that's a transcendent and profound activity to get really big muscles which of course i am i'm highly receptive to i i, I didn't need more reasons to go and exercise but he he's giving them to me anyway <laughs> Oh, he wrote he wrote this book called The Sailor Who Fell from Grace, um, with the sea. Um, I actually downloaded that book independently. Like, apparently, it's a phenomenally beautiful book. Um, yeah, right. Interesting. Um, yeah, no. He, I ordered he, two of his he, books to read on the basis of having read this one because I want to read more of his it, stuff. Yeah, he's a really fantastic writer. Yeah, um, and the fact that he dedicated his uh, at least one of his books, his writing talent to exploring the um virtues of having a beautiful male physique (laughs) uh wrought in the fire of the sun with steel (laughs) very cool very cool i wonder where the bronze age pervert had read this book before i bet you he and he really liked japanese a lot of the same beats but this was written quite a bit before bronze age mindset when was this written this was well, he died in 70, 1970, so <laughs> it must be must be ages ago. Uh, Sun and Steel. Yeah, it's... Uh, doesn't have it. 68. Why would you not put it? Was it written in 68? 1968. Yeah. Okay. And he died in 1970. Um, okay, so yeah. It's super uh, interesting. It precedes Bronze Age mindset. <laughs> 40 yeah, years. Bronze Age pervert <laughs> must have read this. Yeah, I I would bet that Baps read <laughs> read this because he he liked this Japanese like culture. A... Yeah, he he struck me as a bit of a weed. This is a <laughs> much better version of Bronze Age mindset in many ways, an <laughs> incomparably better book. <laughs> Considerably less hateful. Much less hateful. Much better written. Much more interesting. Less weird nature. It begins with him telling... So how about we go through it roughly, chronologically, roughly in the order that the book goes through, because it's quite well structured, and a lot of what he says builds on things that he's previously said, and then at times he'll actually contradict what he said earlier in the book by saying, at this point I realised that this previous thought was incorrect. It's, It's very much a sketch of his evolving thought, over time, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, like maybe you'd call it an intellectual memoir, or a feel like a yeah, yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah, like it's it, a, I still can't quite get over the oddness though of having much. the intellectual memoir, whose one of whose central themes is just 
getting bigger muscles. <laughs> and having, really like having a beautiful physique. He's got this long section on how he was wondering at one stage what it would be like to view the world from the subjectivity of a man with a massive physique. And he goes through this long... Well, long in the context of a 100-page book. So a discourse for a few pages on really the impossibility of truly understanding the subjectivity of another person and then ends it by saying, well, I didn't even need to use any sort of abstract method to understand what it was like to live as a man with a massive physique because I went to the gym enough and developed a massive physique. It's it's that <laughs> like, sort of stuff that just makes this book so good. I was good. like to be jacked and so I went and got jacked and now I know what it's like <laughs> to be jacked. fucking jacked. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and it's awesome. It's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this book really is good. Okay, let's start talking about the book instead of just saying how good it is because I could talk about how good it is for a long time. <laughs> And he's got this kind of classic kind of Japanese um, handsomeness to him, you know. Like he's a, he's like like. Um... Yeah, he was a pretty good-looking guy. Yeah, at least the edition I have too has a picture of him and with his shirt off and a samurai sword, staring yeah, yeah. at the camera, <laughs> flexing. <laughs> yeah, very strange fellow, hey. So I think he was a very, very odd man. If this book is anything to go by, <laughs> it was exceptionally strange. <laughs> well, he starts off the book with sort of talking about the methodology of the... He calls it confidential criticism. And he says it's a hybrid between confession and criticism. Um, which mm, his confidential I would say... Criticism. Uh, he said, "He like he says, I see it as the twilight genre between the night of confession and the daylight of criticism, um, which I, I think it like encapsulates it well. It's sort of it's almost um a dialogue with himself. Like he could have not published this, and it would have just been like his reflections on his own life for himself. Um, I mean, I'm happy that he did publish it. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, could, I, I want yeah. to continue that quote too, because it's also interesting what he continues on with. He says, The eye with which I shall occupy myself will not, will not be the eye that relates back strictly to myself, but something else, some residue, that remains after all the other words I have uttered have flowed back into me, something that neither related back nor flows back. So he he seems to be saying here that He's ultimately writing it from the perspective of him in 1960. Was it what, 68 you said that it was published in? So Yeah, he must have written it leading 60s. up. Yeah, late 60s, mid to late 60s. So it's, it's his current subjectivity trying to write about his previous subjectivities before he had a, a magnificent physique and big muscles. <laughs> and so before he learned good. No, it's like I'm it, critiquing it myself like when I'm I was making fun of him when I say that. But that is just that is actually part of the book about yeah, how he learns to see the world as muscles. someone with a magnificent physique. So fucking good. <laughs> I actually this He's book just... got me so fucking motivated to get back in. <laughs> he starts off by talking about his childhood and how his quest to discover his body was was first inspired he talks about how for most people they have a knowledge of the body before they have a knowledge of words so they learn to relate to the world in a wordless physical way 
before they have the the intermediary of words between themselves and the experiences of the world. And he regards words as corrosive. And I found him talking about words is really interesting because he was a brilliant author. Yeah, it's and super interesting. How it's, this nice? It's, it's really, really cool hearing him talk about how he regards his craft. And so he sees words as corrosive because they take this raw, these raw sensory data and fit them into categories. And the categories don't necessarily perfectly fit the, the sensations that they're categorizing. And in doing so, they corrode these sensations slightly. And he says, because he, unlike most people, he first understood the world with words, that his, his conception of the world is in some way fundamentally corroded. And he wanted to find out how to experience the world without this corrosion of words, because he'd never, he'd never felt that. And he uses uh, this metaphor of, of white ants eating wood, which comes up a few times, so it might, I'd, I'd like to read it out. He says, First comes the pillar of plain wood, then the white ants that feed on it. But for me, the white ants were there from the start, and the pillar of plain wood emerged tardily, already half eaten away. Let the reader not chide me for comparing my own trade to the white ant. In its essence, any art that relies on words makes use of their ability to eat away, of their corrosive function, just as etching depends on the corrosive power of nitric acid. Yet the simile is not accurate enough, for the copper and the nitric acid used in etching are on a part with each other, on being, uh, both being extracted from nature, while the relation of words to reality is not that of the acid to the plate. Words are a medium that reduces reality to abstraction for transmission to our reason, and in their power to corrode, reality inevitably lurks the danger that the words themselves will be corroded too. It might be more appropriate, in fact, to liken their action to that of excess stomach fluid that digests and gradually uh, that digest and gradually eat away the stomach itself. As a as a writer, what did you um? What did you think of his criticisms of his uh, of his craft? I think a lot of them are really, yeah, are, are right and really, really profound. So there is there's this problem of the fact that words can never really describe experience with a high degree of accuracy. There's always this trade-off between resolution and speed. So you could have a language that could describe sensation with a much higher degree of resolution, but you're, you're going to lose speed with that or the speed of communication. If you have a, a language which spends so much time describing the minutiae of each sensation, then you're, you're not going to be able to communicate nearly as quickly as if you had a language which was able to abstract away a lot of the finer details of sensation, but communicate with sort of the, the rapidity needed for day-to-day -day life. He also has this really interesting... So, sorry, that, that's, I think, in part what the corrosion he talks about is from. Later on in the book, he also talks about the interiority and exteriority of words, how if your words become too interior and they only relate to something felt within you, then... To an extent, they're not really able to communicate something to someone else. Or they can only communicate something to someone else insofar as they relate to someone that, to something that that person is feeling interiorly. But you as the author, 
don't actually have control over that. You don't know what that person has within themselves that your words will relate to. So he talks about how he needed to write more generally and less personally to maximise the chance that he was writing something that other people could understand clearly and didn't just relate to himself. And I'm sure we'll come across more examples of him talking about his craft. It's really interesting. It's really, really interesting seeing how he regarded fiction or writing words in general. Yeah, and he has... And how, how ultimately he came to view viewing or experiencing the world through the body without the intermediary of words as the way to gain experience to then put into words to write with. I thought that method that at the end of the book I think he came up with, again, the book's quite poetic, so it's hard to say what exactly he was getting at, but I think <laughs> that's what he came to eventually. And uh, th- there is an interesting idea about, like, almost being alienated from one's body and especially yeah, with uh, yeah. anything writing or I, I think programmers can get it like I definitely get it um, any extremely like cognitively um, I suppose cognitively focused um, practice profession craft Um there's a risk of, uh, yeah, not being connected to one's body. So I've had this uh, experience living with my older brother, who's a who's a choreographer and uh, a dancer, professional dancer, and he's extremely like in touch with his body. Obviously, like super body aware. And then uh, this was like during lockdowns in Melbourne, and then I was like coding all the time. And find it like really difficult to like uh it's almost like a almost dissociative like programming during lockdowns like as a way to get out of it whereas like he was able to like do his uh like practice his dance or whatever in the house and it almost like uh like helped him deal with the stasis of being in lockdown I just found that so interesting. Uh, so it's like bodily focus, professions and stuff. Um, I, I really related to his perspective about about sort of uh, on that note. So it's always been so important for me to like always be exercising. <laughs> to like get yeah. out of the fucking like cognitive, the cognitive thought stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's, that point I found really interesting. I think I have the experience of... I'll read a quote about him uh, discovering how to live through the body in a moment, but I think I do have an experience of that from exercise. Like, I've exercised fairly obsessively for quite quite a long time. I think since we've known each other. You exercise, yeah. Like, we both... Well, we both exercised since high school, but like when we met each other in undergrad, like we were fucking exercising all the time. <laughs> I was like obsessive at one point, like really, like I was still pretty obsessive. I, uh, I, I don't. When was the last time I didn't exercise? It's been. I sort of like need to replace. I because I have probably a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a, like I can be a bit obsessive about things, and um, 
exercise, I think. <laughs> as, Jack, as Jack knows. <laughs> and, uh, and like a bit, I don't know, a bit, a bit, uh, what, what would I say about myself? I can be a bit strange about things at times and um, throw myself into things full, full on. And uh, I always thought like, well, if I'm like that, I should throw it into exercise or yeah, or like outdoor stuff or whatever. I get really into something that's healthy rather than like direct it towards like um, you could definitely direct that sort of energy towards unhealthy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. When he describes that feeling of, we'll get into his views of, of individuality versus de-individuality later, but as a preface to that, when he talked about those things, I feel like the closest I come to understanding it is the feeling of when you're really exhausted with exercise. So on, for example, mm, long mm. runs, oh, past so maybe good. the 35k so mark, when you really hit the wall, when you've got no more glycogen left in your muscles... That's when I felt, well, that's, those are the feelings that I think he's describing when he talks about the, that depersonalization through, the, um, through physical pain, which for him is really, really important. And an important part of exercise is the discomfort it brings. <laughs> yeah, you get a really moment like that. of that with really, yeah. really heavy lifts. Like when you're doing a, like say a one rep max squat or something like that, Free diving, you get, you get that, it in a different way. Free yeah, you get that like, feeling of of absolute focus where you don't view the word the world through words. You just view the world through the prism of trying not to get pinned by the bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with free diving, you get it. It's a bit different than like weightlifting or running, but it's more like um, like you can't be thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know like <laughs> i don't know how to solve some problem at work or whatever or like some bullshit that you saw on youtube when you're like trying to like get under the fucking water as deep as you can and then like <laughs> safely get back up and so you got to sort of like be really really present <laughs> yep. yeah those sorts of things i think are super important yeah yeah 100 plus my brother the, the dancer he he has this beautiful way of, he said to me um uh, our body evolved to do one thing and that's a and that's to move you know like it's that's what animals are <laughs> it was motility is one of the key things of uh of being an animal <laughs> and it's super important i don't think people move enough in this day and age no i don't i don't no, I certainly do. don't think i do so i have a lot of sympathy for um <laughs> for for mishima's perspective so having said that, I'll read a quote here where um, he's talking about how, as a child, he was once looking at the window at the at this procession of people on some, it was some religious festival, I think, and a group of people were carrying some sort of shrine, like one of those really big floats on their shoulders that's really, really heavy. And he noticed that they were looking up and he couldn't work out what they were looking at. And then he realizes what they were looking at after he pursued the sun and the steel, after he developed a beautiful body and learned to live through his body. So here's the quote. It was only much later, after I had begun to learn the language of the flesh, that I undertook to help in shouldering a portable shrine and was at last able to solve the puzzle that had plagued me since infancy. 
They were simply looking at the sky. In their eyes, there was no vision, only the reflection of the blue and absolute skies of early autumn. Those blue skies, though, were unusual skies, such as I might never see again in my life. One moment strung up high aloft, the next plunged to the depths, constantly shifting, a strange compound of lucidity and madness. I promptly set down what I had discovered in a short essay, so important did my experience seem to me. In short, I had found myself at a point where there were no grounds for doubting that the sky that my own poetic intuition had shown me, and the sky revealed to the eyes of those ordinary young men of the neighbourhood, were identical. That moment for which I had been waiting so long was a blessing that the sun and the steel had conferred on me. Why, you may ask, were there no grounds for doubt? Because, provided certain physical conditions are equal and a certain physical burden shared, so long as an equal physical stress is savoured and an identical intoxication overtakes all alike, then differences of individual sensibility are restricted by countless factors to an absolute minimum. If, in addition, the introspective element is removed almost completely, then one is safe in asserting that what I had witnessed was no individual illusion, but one fragment of a well-defined group vision. My poetic intuition did not become a personal privilege until later, when I used words to recall and reconstruct that vision. My eyes, in their meeting with the blue sky, had penetrated to the essential pathos of the doer. So this... This sums up a few things that we've just talked about and talks about a few things that we will later get to. But he does seem to be talking about how when you're performing some physical task that's sufficiently difficult, you can reach a point where you stop thinking or you stop, you stop having words as an intermediary between you and experience and you just experience and he seems to view that state as a de-individualized state, which particularly later in the book, he, he really tries to seek out this de-individuality and this absolute group belonging, where if a person is subjected to a strenuous enough physical burden, they will experience the same perfect bodily experience that anyone else would experience and I found that that really interesting. I, mean, yeah, I, I don't know like... to what to what extent my experiences of this are the same as someone else, but certainly in a marathon when you hit the wall, you feel you feel like absolute shit. But <laughs> do you, you also do it. <laughs> you achieve this clarity of experience that I haven't felt elsewhere in other settings. Yeah, it's fascinating. Hit, hitting the wall or pulling. Pulling a really heavy deadlift or squat. <laughs> Do you reckon Kyriakos is you just get, always... You get the same feeling, except in, the, in those cases, it only lasts for a few seconds. Whereas with hitting the wall, you've got like seven Ks or something like that till the end of the race, depending on when exactly <laughs> you hit it. So you, you can savour that feeling for a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's <was> so fucked. <laughs> So funny. Yeah, I think um, there's an interesting aspect about collectivize, like doing these things in a collective setting as well. I don't know what it's like for you when you do your solo runs compared to the marathon. However, I, I do remember when I used to do group exercise that like um, there, it's definitely a setting in which uh, 
and by group exercise, I mean like it used to do military cadets and stuff when I was uh, when I was in school, and uh, and probably like some of the martial arts stuff that I've done. Like when you really push it, and like you're in a setting with other people who are pushing it, like it's quite um like builds a sense of camaraderie and connection and like shared experience of like uh a struggle or like transcendence or whatever it's it, it is actually pretty fucking cool i actually haven't had that in years that'd be cool to to have that again <laughs> that is a really nice thing about race day versus training so training i don't like to run with other people no i like running to be solitary but on race day it is nice because once you know at the start everyone's kind of crammed together but once the race has been going for a while people tend to separate out into groups of people who are running at roughly the same pace as you'd expect and even if you don't know those people's names there is a feeling of camaraderie especially when things get tougher and you can see everyone's suffering and so are you there is that feeling of quite an impersonal bond and that's something i really enjoy Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's just <laughs> machine just takes it to this like level of like ex- existential so collectivism. This guy thought about this feeling so much. <laughs> he took it really, this really is, seriously. This book is an extended meditation. It's like a hundred pages written exploring that feeling. It's so fucking good. Which is great. This is ultimate is gym, so gym bro literature. You could probably have just an entire podcast about gym bro literature. And it'd be pretty good. You'd definitely have BAP on there and you'd have uh and you'd have yeah. Mishima. BAP would be a bit yeah, weird, Mishima. But definitely Mishima. Um I wonder who else you'd have. Yo, yo, you'd have to watch Pumping Iron for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's and, such a good movie. And though. the uh the and the documentary great, about, but the original is is a classic. <laughs> Ronnie Coleman as well. There's a really great documentary about him. Um Does he have a documentary? I've just seen I compilations think- of him screaming on YouTube. I'm pretty sure I've seen a documentary about him. I might be mistaken, man. Somebody else. <laughs> Ronnie Coleman's voice just does not fit his body. He does not look like he should sound the way he does. Yeah, it's called, the documentary is called Ronnie Coleman the King. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Ronnie Coleman. It's so funny. <laughs> All natural bodybuilder. All natural. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 145 kilos of all-natural bodybuilder. Lightweight, baby. Lightweight. He was what Mishima was talking about. Oh, God. I think Mishima must have fucking loved, would have loved Ronnie Coleman. Ronnie Coleman. Yeah, so he's uh, 135 kilos of just shredded muscle. Oh my god, the dude's only five foot eleven. He's only 180 centimeters tall. What? What? I thought Ronnie Coleman was really tall. No, it says it says on Wikipedia he's only he's 180 centimeters tall. The guy's 130 for something fucking the kilos, dude, and he's our dude, height. He's my height. What the fuck? He's dude? my height except kilos. There's no what way. The fuck? Dude, what the fuck? Yeah, he's yep. Have confirmed. 135 kilograms and 1.8 meters tall. Jeez. Jeez. I always thought Jeez. in my head I At had... my heaviest, I was 95 kilos. 
I always had it in my head that he was like <laughs> six foot something because his physique is just so ridiculous. Yeah, I thought he was really tall. No. <laughs> so weird. The king. The king, yeah. Do you see the time he he came out on stage dressed as Moses with the Ten Commandments <laughs> on two stones? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh my god, he's like he's in the, he's got like full head of hair and like a beard on. And he's he's, he's squatting with golden on. with golden bodybuilding undies on. <laughs> so fucking good. Such a ridiculous man. Uh, the king. The only the other amazing bodybuilder was uh was Kai Green. Kai Green. <laughs> Fucking amazing! It, there's this video on on Pornhub somewhere, like porn, where he, he was uh, where back in the early days. He fucks a grapefruit. He fucks a grape melon. <laughs> dude, just like enormous, <laughs> enormous dude fucking a grape melon. <laughs> yeah, what a champion! Kai Green's champion. He he is a fucking fantastic motherfucker as well. I love all these guys. They're such ridiculous. They're like um, they're like cattle. You know those um yeah um, yeah they, they those looked, enhanced genetically enhanced they look cattle like those, um, yeah the myostatin deficient cows <laughs> myostatin deficient cows so 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 good is it like myostatin inhibits like uh, protein synthesis or something so it's like when they're deficient with it their muscles are just fucking ridiculous they just get really big <laughs> muscles myostatin deficient. Yeah, this, is, this is exactly so what Mishima was writing about. I reckon Mishima would but have loved pe- these, these cows. These are people who, unlike Mishima, understood this intuitively. They didn't need to write lots of books about how good bodybuilding is to understand this. Ronnie Coleman just jumped into the gym, jumped on his D-bowl cycle and got big. I mean, <laughs> jumped on his natural bodybuilding, no PED jumped on, cycle. Um... That those amino acids, those essential amino acids, whilst he was <laughs> he was sipping on some BC double A's. That's that's all it was. Our natural. <laughs> he injected one dose of creatine and immediately gained <laughs> four kilos of lean mass. He he went from eighty kilograms scrawny dweeb to hundred and thirty five kilo monster with one one dose of creatine. You know there was this there was a media Storm, like a minor media storm a few years ago after Elliot Roger shot up, um, was it Isla Vista? Because someone told a journalist that he'd started taking creatine shortly before the mass shooting and it changed <laughs> his personality. Yeah, yeah. And the mass shooting was because of the dangerous it's mental effects of Yeah, creatine I remember seeing an article or something like that when it came out and just thinking like, what the fuck are these <laughs> cooked motherfuckers? Like, there's, this person knows with, nothing about creatine. Like, With that sort of journalism, like, it only surely makes they you have like... one friend who's a gym rat and they could have just <laughs> asked them, hey, what does creatine do? Have have you felt like shooting like, up a university campus since starting creatine? <laughs> no. It's like anyone who's taken it will say, "Oh, yeah, it lets me get a few reps out each set, and I retain a bit more water." Like that—that that is the well, experience yeah. of taking creatine. Like, yeah, and even that's like a—that's like a good outcome. It's—it's it's really not not like taking fucking. Yeah, otherwise it just makes you or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not going to make you turn into Elliot Roger. Or, or Ronnie Mullen. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Otherwise, I would have been taking it. I would be taking it now. I'm going to get on some Anabol. Oh, yeah? As soon as I turn 30 this year, I'm going to jump on Anabol. <laughs> way ahead of you. Awesome. On my 30th <laughs> birthday, I started the cycle. I just inflated. <laughs> <laughs> I hear I hear it's really good for running long distance, hey Jack. Just load up Yeah, exactly. Of gaining gaining tons and tons of muscle mass is absolutely fantastic <laughs> for marathons. That's exactly what you want. You just you want thighs that chafe nicely so that over <laughs> once you get past that like forty K mark, you're just a bloody mess. You blood running down the inside of your legs. <laughs> Well, that's a pro- that's a problem for my distance running in that I'm just not willing to lose upper body mass, so I'm I'm just too heavy to get really good times, but I'm not willing to get smaller. Shall we give? Shall this, we give these back are the to difficulties of living that Yukio Mishima sun and steel that lifestyle. pure pure Yukio Mishima life, just sun and steel every day, <laughs> motherfuckers. But I, I think that, um, I don't know, do women also have this sort of thing? as much? I think it's definitely much more prevalent amongst young men to have this sort of attitude towards this stuff. But I assume them, like, for example, when I was doing CrossFit, um, the some of the young women who were doing CrossFit were fucking jacked, like super jacked. Stacked. And I reckon they'd be into it. But, like, I see it's way more common amongst men <laughs> to, to have this sort of weird attitude toward exercise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, my wife exercises pretty obsessively. Does she? What's her attitude but, in terms of like? Does she? Does she get like? Does she wax philosophical? Yeah, she does wax philosophical about it. Yeah, she gets. She fucking gets into it. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was definitely receptive to some of the the sun and steelisms <laughs> that I was telling her about. I mean, she wasn't so passionate when I said I'm going to get as jacked as possible. Then at the age of thirty five. Commit seppuku to destroy a beautiful body and live, <laughs> live to be as worthy of an honourable death. <laughs> she wasn't so happy with that. No, yeah, she wasn't no, willing to behead me. Ah, oh, damn. I don't know, man. Yeah, I know. Hey, if you ever need to be beheaded, just let me know. <laughs> uh, I can help you out. <laughs> so, Mishima talks about his idea of tragedy, which will come up a few times in the book, as Tragedy is when um, it's basically when the average sensibility gets a privileged nobility in, in physical courage and exertion. And when he says the average sensibility, what he means is a sensibility that is attuned to experience and the same sort of experience that any person has access to. Not this interiority of over-intellectualization when one's words only relate to their internal life. That's the sort of subjectivity which can't experience tragedy. It can produce tragedy in things like novels, which is what he said he'd done previously, but it can't experience tragedy. And that part of the tragedy comes from, or the ability to appreciate tragedy comes from this superhuman clarity that you get when you're exposed to these intense physical physical burdens because you you meet tragedy as in you meet this 
sensation of your death or this appreciation of your mortality that comes about through physical suffering, through an anti-tragic vitality that, I guess, homeostatically or something, arises in the person experiencing this tragedy and opposes it. His idea of tragedy, I thought, was kind of weird and I don't pretend to really understand, but it's important for me to say this because quite a few times later in the book he talks about tragedy. He then says that he set out to to restore the corrosion that had been wrought upon him by words. And the way he was going to do that is by learning to experience just through the body. So he was going to learn more about this state that he experienced of seeing the blue sky perfectly and in the same way that other people could when he was carrying this this shrine on his back. And and should we um sort of explain the role of sun and steel specifically in that journey? Yeah. So the sun and the steel is literally referring to, to sun and steel. It's it's in a, yeah, yeah. It's funny because it's not a metaphor. <laughs> I going into the book, I was like, no, it's going to be a metaphor for something. No, it's not. That's another it's literally fantastic like, part of this book. That yeah, it's the title is just not a metaphor. It is yeah. I I I allowed myself to experience the world through sun tanning and being outside and steel the gym. Yeah, basically exercising a shitload outside and getting, getting, essentially just spending hours outside doing intensive exercise until he gets into these like self-transcendent states from exhaustion (laughs) for like years on end. (laughs) And by still, he's referring particularly, I think he's referring to like exercise in general, but particularly sword swordsmanship. Like, I uh, am I correct in saying like Japanese swordsmanship? Yeah, to Kendo. Kendo but also, right. he with Steel, he is referring to weights. And there are yes. a bunch of really yeah. good pictures on the internet of him doing a high bar squat with his shirt off, which so I, I strongly approve of. I really very, very strongly yes. approve of that. Very, very well-positioned uh, lumbar spine, like nice and straight. None of this like um, mm. hip-tucking shit. And uh, very... Um, very deep, very deep in the squat. My only, my only uh, criticism of his form is that his his patella is like really way over his uh his feet, like probably putting a lot of shearing force, and he could have sat back a bit more. But the, I don't know, like his high bar squatting, so maybe it's tough to do with high bar squat though. Yeah. Like I find with a lo- with a low bar squat, you can definitely sit back into it more easily. But I'm also much more used to low bar rather than high <laughs> bar squatting. But then again. You know, like if he was like some of the um some of the Olympic lifters, like they their their knee tracking goes pretty far over their feet. So maybe you know, maybe it's 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 a bit like the mechanics of like the high bar squats a, a bit different. I don't know. High bar <laughs> squat, know yeah, so much more quad dominant. Your your knees are gonna come forward a bit. You can't really avoid it. But yes, other other than that, but that's I think the he's thing. Doing a I mean, job. he's doing a the, good job. The the worst, the only my criticism of him is not so much about his knee tracking, but that he wasn't in a like twenty ply powerlifting suit that's going to fucking slingshot you through the stratosphere unless you've got two tons on your back or something. Like that. <laughs> that's my main criticism. <laughs> and I am I'm very glad <laughs> he doesn't that look he, like he he's, he's, he's a, a tomato that's about to pop 
from <laughs> like a lot of those equipped cowards look like in the non-drug tested federations <laughs> they just look like they're about to drop dead <laughs> wonder what their fucking blood pressure is man <laughs> oh, oh man yeah if you 200 if over 200 cut, they'd probably exsanguinate in about two seconds <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really cool. I, and I think that's great as well because he's, uh, you know, he's squatting, you know, that whole idea of, you know, don't let your friend skip legs day, leg day, although my little fucking skinny, skinny fucking legs <laughs> are tiny little calves. But I still try to get around leg stuff. <laughs> so good on him. Good on him. He was just one of those, uh, you know, the, the, the king, Ziz, definitely squatted. He had a good, Ziz had fucking phenomenal, like, I think ratio, you know, like extremely aesthetic. Yeah, that's the thing with Ziz. He wasn't gigantic. He was just born with godlike proportions, like absolutely god tier proportions. God tier proportions, just very, very aesthetic. He, I bet you. Do you reckon <laughs> all the internet bros if only that Yukio Mishima lived to see to the see aesthetic Ziz. movement sweep the globe? Oh yeah, from, the twenty ten aesthetic was somewhere movement. Somewhere in New South Wales, wasn't he? Isn't he's a Western Sydney boy? <laughs> he's like from Parramatta or something. Yeah, centering Western Sydney. So fucking good. Yeah, Western Sydney, Russian-born <laughs> Australian bodybuilder. Um, as is Sergeyevich. Sorry, I fuck up. I'll fuck up his name. Sergeyevich uh, Shavershishian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, fuck that up. Um, he was born in Moscow. In 89, when it was the Soviet Union. Oh, was so interesting. So, Mishima... Man, I just, this, book is, this book just resonated with me so much. I just... <laughs> I love this book. Oh, man. <laughs> so, he talks about how ideas are foreign to bodily existence and the body is foreign to the spirit. And when he says foreign, I think he means that they, that these things only come from without, without any conscious control. And he compares the mind to the body in that the body is full of involuntary muscles. And the, these movements which occur independently of what the spirit commands. And similarly, there are ideas that appear within the mind or within the body unbidden, but through training you can gain a mastery over them. So I quote, For ideas are, in the long run, essentially foreign to human existence, and the body, receptacle of the involuntary muscles, of the internal organs and circulatory system, over which it has no control, is foreign to the spirit, so that it is even possible for people to use the body as a metaphor for ideas, both being something quite alien to human existence as such. And the way in which an idea can take possession of the mind unbidden, with the suddenness of a stroke of fate, reinforces still further the resemblance of ideas to the body, with which each of us, willy-nilly, is endowed, giving even this automatic, uncontrollable function a striking resemblance to the flesh. And so he says... Because initially, he's just trying to train his body to learn how to live through the body, but... Later on, he starts saying, okay, how can I apply this to the mind? And this quote, which is fairly early on in the book, prefigures that. It's him saying, it's him realizing that just as he can train his body to bring these muscles under his control, he can do the same with his mind, which he does eventually do. 
He also talks about his relationship to the sun and how it began. But he, he talks about how he a few times comes back to his brief military training during the Second World War. So from what I've learned about him, he actually avoided fighting in the war and really tried to avoid being conscripted, but did at least, I think, a few months of military training. And he talks about this time quite fondly as a time when it was during a period of his life when he only lived through words and the intellect, but in the military training, he was forced to live through his body and not only live through his body, but live through his body in a group setting among other people who were doing the same while all of their actions were oriented towards death, which allowed him to experience tragedy. And the sense for tragedy, which he later lost, or the ability to experience tragedy in that way. And so he he came to regard his military training very, very fondly. And he talks about how it was during his military training that he came to appreciate the sun, which before he regarded as something not evil, but something which he avoided. He experienced these nocturnal thoughts he talks about. But he, he came to appreciate the sun during his military days. And that was his first encounter with it. His second encounter was in 1952 on the deck of a ship when he was making his first journey abroad. And he says, I exchanged a reconciliatory handshake with the sun. His skin started to tan and it separated him from the ateliated, pe the ateliated people who entertain what he calls night thoughts, these self-referential, purely internal, personal thoughts, which he says that most Japanese people after the war entertained, but he wanted to break free of. He's got this interesting thing, though. So when he talks about the sun, he then starts talking about how he wanted to look for profundity in the surface of things rather than the interior, rather than in the interior of things, because it is on the surface that the skin becomes tan and it is on the surface that you can see muscles. And so he decides that profundity should be sought in the surface. And I've got a pretty good quote for that. He says, if the law of thought is that it should search out profundity, whether it extends upwards or downwards, then it seemed excessively illogical to me that men should not discover depths of a kind in the surface, that vital borderline that endorses our separateness and our form, dividing our exterior for our interior. Why should they not be attracted to the, by the profundity of the surface itself? The sun was enticing, almost dragging my thoughts away from their night of visceral sensations, away to the swelling of muscles encased in sunlit skin, and it was commanding me to construct a new and sturdy dwelling in which my, my mind, as it rose little by little to the surface, could live in security. That dwelling was a tanned, lustrous skin and powerful, sensitively rippling muscles. I came to feel that it was precisely because such an abode was required that the average intellectual failed to feel at home with thought that concerned itself with forms and surfaces. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, so in other words, uh, sun's out, guns out, boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what he's he saying. He fucking loves it. <laughs> Do you reckon he would have loved Melanotan? 
he would have gotten around in Melanotan. He would have gotten around. Well, man, the innovations uh, that you can Melanotan see Melanotan gives you the results of the sun without the sun, though. So it's what's, yeah. I guess, the question is, what is important to him? Is it, is it the, I think it's the, process. the effect of the sun I think it's or a the process sun guy. itself or both? I think the effect is merely like the um, sort of physical evidence that one has gone through the suffering and the process of mm, battling mm. with the sun. And so it's like, um, it's almost like he's treating his body like folded steel in a furnace and his body is the yeah. sword. It's the, the you know, how like samurai swords, like traditional ones, they can have that uh, kind of liquid look. There's waves on them from yeah, the folds. Yeah, yeah like the, the tan to him is, is like the waves in the steel. The sun is his furnace. And so I think Melanotan would be. <laughs> I think Melanotan would be. The metaphysics of Melanotan in the context of would be, uh Would be like spray painting on the ways. So it's the mere appearance of, of folded okay. steel, but not so the actual. Melan- integrity. You bring up a very interesting point. So Melanotan's <laughs> one thing. What would he think of something like D-Bowl or Tren? So <laughs> androgenic yeah, but that, performance that, enhancing drugs. Because you're gonna if, I would if make you the case trend cycle, you're gonna get a lot bigger. But I would make the case that mm. that because those are performance enhancing drugs, well I don't well maybe not Clen and Tren, hey, but like at least like Dianabol and stuff, like they enable you to work out harder, like they increase your aggression. They increase your whatever, like, strength and endurance. I, I don't know. It probably depends on, like, what exact stack you're taking. So maybe those would be acceptable. Maybe. He might be a natural, like, an al natural kind of guy, like, oh, you're faking it or, you know, that's exogenous. Like, I could see him making an argument, for example, against caffeine and pre-workouts, you know, like, hey, that's not really you doing the work. You're, like, substituting your own, like... um interaction with the sun and the steel <laughs> mm. by amping yourself up artificially. I'd imagine that he'd be like, yeah, you do it super hard and like you suffer and stuff, but without the exogenous things. So it's just like you and your body and the experience. So it really, it's, it's a, a de- deontology versus consequentialism of muscle for Yukio Machine. I think so. Which Where do you stand? Are you a consequentialist or a deontologist? When it comes to getting jacked. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> Are you natty bra? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Are you natty bra? <laughs> yeah. I'd probably ultimately fall on the deontology side, but it depends what you're trying to do. So <laughs> if, if you're trying to win the Olympia, then fucking take Mr. Olympia. as much shit as you want because you just kind of have to and <laughs> you're not take doing insulin. it for health. Yeah, those motherfuckers <laughs> like take If you're doing it for insulin. health reasons... <laughs> Yeah, if you're doing it for health reasons, stay away from it. But what I'm interested in is, yeah, because with Mishima's view of steroids, it would really come down to the relative importance he gives to muscles as an end in themselves. If you have big muscles, does that necessarily make you more in touch with, in, with, with experiencing the world bodily? Or is the process of getting those muscles what is really important? Because while I wonder yes, if there's you any like to, uh, 
you definitely have to work to get you still really have to work stacked, you don't just, even when you're taking PEDs. Because you can take the PEDs not But you have to you can work less hard for the same goes. effects. So I wonder whether you would yeah. you would not appreciate the tragedy or orient yourself towards death to nearly the same extent if you were using PEDs to get the same amount of muscle as someone who did it naturally. That's such this a good is, question. It's a shame that he's a not around for us to ask him what his views on, on steroids are. A, a neo-Mishimian. <laughs> Mishima? Mishimamen. Mishimium? Mishimium. I don't know. Uh, whatever, like a modern-day uh, like uh, prodigy. or um, Bronze Age pervert. Yeah, what does Bronze Age say about PDs? I wonder. I have no idea what he says about PEDs. I don't, I don't pay great. <laughs> he loves a good male physique. <laughs> he does love male physiques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, shall we move on? Yeah. I've got a quote here where he's talking about individuality. So he has, throughout this book, he's trying to free himself from individuality and from this separation of himself from other people's experiences. And he's here talking about how there's this tendency of the mind to create a false order, which protects life from the chaos of the universe, but can also separate life from the outside world. So he says, This is another example of the quality that our spirits and bodies have in common, that tendency shared by the body and the mind to instantly create their own small universe, their own false order, whenever at one particular time, they are taken control of by one particular idea. Although what happens in fact represents a kind of standstill, it is experienced as though it were a burst of lively centripetal activity. The fun this function of the body and mind in creating for a short while their own miniature universes is in fact no more than an illusion. Yet the fleeting sense of happiness in human life owes much to precisely this type of false order. It is a kind of protective function of life in face of the chaos around it and resembles the way a hedgehog rolls itself up t into a tight round ball. And it's interesting here because on one hand he says this false order can make you more individuated and shut you, shut you off from experiencing the blue sky without the, the intermediary of words. But you can also choose a false order to follow. And he chose the false order of sun and steel to remake himself or rediscover himself and learn how to understand the world de-individually and only through the body. So it's interesting here he seems to be saying that these, these intellectual schema that we construct, like pursuing the sun and steel, are ultimately just that. They're schema. They're to an extent arbitrary, but he's chosen his arbitrariness of sun and steel because he sees that it will lead him to something higher. So interesting, isn't it? Oh, and actually, I've got a, another quote here, which might be the most poetic description of games that I've ever come across. He says, The nature of this steel is odd. I found that as I increased its weight little by little, the effect was like a pair of scales. The bulk of muscles placed, as it were, on the other pan increased proportionately, as though the steel had a duty to maintain a strict balance between the two. 
Little by little, moreover, the properties of my muscles came increasingly to resemble those of the steel. This slow development, I found, was remarkably similar to the process of education, which remodels the brain intellectually by feeding it with progressively more difficult matter. And since there was always the vision of a classical ideal of the body to serve as a model and an ultimate goal, the process closely resembled the classical idea of education. So good. So good. That is a, that's a very aesthetic description of going he to has the gym. His, this other line where he says, muscles have gradually become something akin to classical Greek uh, to revive the dead language, the discipline. So he's like talking about basically building a, a strong male physique this is like analogistic to like reviving a dead like classical language so <laughs> so good so it good, so and good. <laughs> he has this other one where he's like a powerful tragic and sculpturesque a powerful tragic frame and sculpturesque muscles were indispensable in a romantically noble death like he just he fucking loves it. He fucking <laughs> loves it. Uh, so good. Just makes me want to like go back to the gym super hard and get shredded and <laughs> just yeah, get back to like when I was like in my early twenties. <laughs> I just I I need research on regrowing cartilage to reach the stage where I can get some new kneecaps or get stem get cells, man. You need to go to Panama. Come to Panama. Get those stem cell treatments. Because as soon as that shit. happens, as soon as that happens, I will fork out so <laughs> You're much back money in the gym. to Joe get Rogan's back, been getting and then I will go cells. straight back to the gym so I can destroy them again. I would do it in a fucking second. Joe Rogan talks about going down to Panama or something to get shoulder and knee stem cell injections. Apparently the UFC fighters do it. Yeah, does it actually work though? Well, I guess that's what we'd have to find out and see if these are... I mean, I don't know if I'd trust the decision-making of people who make a career out of getting punched in the head, but I know they're making no. more money than I am, so... <laughs> <laughs> so may, maybe I'm the dumb one, whatever. <laughs> He's got this really interesting idea of how as muscles become more developed, or maybe I should say... So as we mentioned many times... He's, he sets up this opposition between individuality and de-individuality. And he really seems to be wanting to de-individuate, to dissolve into a group and experience things tragically and in a way that is shared with others. And similarly, he says that an untrained physique is quite individual. So he talks about how sagging arms or a pot belly or pale skin they all set a person apart he seems to be saying that all of these things are grotesque but grotesque in ways particular to a person whereas the bigger muscles you get and the more shredded you get these muscles move towards an ideal almost a platonic form of muscle and become less and less individuated and more and more general and so therefore by pursuing an ideal greek physique you are de-individuating and becoming this embodiment of an ideal and i found that idea so much fun that you know, through trading he's he's approaching the platonic ideal of muscle 
Nah. I quote. It's extremely platonic. I think he would have fit in with Plato's Academy. (laughs) It definitely fits in with Plato's Academy. So good. Yeah, here it is. What I found in muscles through the intermediary of steel was a burgeoning of this type of triumph of the non-specific, the triumph of knowing that one was the same as others. As the relentless pressure of the steel progressively stripped my muscles of their unusualness and individuality, which were a product of degeneration, and as they gradually developed, they should, I reasoned, begin to assume a universal aspect, until finally they reached a point where they conformed to a general pattern in which individual differences ceased to exist. This this universality thus attained would suffer no private corrosion, no betrayal. This was its most desirable trait in my eyes. This is like the platonization or the universalization of (laughs) through through bodybuilding. (laughs) This is this is ontological transformation of your muscles. (laughs) Yeah, not in a lame Evolian way of living according to some sort of self-set ideal of something beyond good and evil, but through going to the gym, just smashing the bench press. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just, and Kendo just doing dumbbell in the curls sun. in front of a mirror for eight hours. Amazing and doing <clears throat> like low squats and shit. What a what an amazing what an amazing uh, philosophy. <laughs> I think every gym bro should read this fucking book. <laughs> and I would recommend this book to almost anyone. This is just <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> I'll hand out copies of this on street corners. <laughs> It's like instead of like the little red book or something, you start up like this uh, mission revival steel. revival uh, movement. Just get everybody onto sudden steel. <laughs> get a whole bunch of like young dudes committing uh, committing ritual suicide, <laughs> trying to like bring back the Japanese. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the bit shortly where he talks about committing suicide. Because <laughs> he start the the more in touch he gets with muscles, the more in touch with death he gets. Uh, can I read a quote? Yeah, um, yes, please. I'll continue from the Greek one. Uh, muscles have gradually become something akin to classical Greek. To revive the dead language, the discipline of the steel was required. To change the silence of death into the eloquence of life, the aid, <clears throat> sorry, the eloquence of life, the aid of steel was essential. The steel faithfully taught me the correspondence between the spirit and the body. Thus, feeble emotions, it seemed to me, corresponded to flaccid muscles, sentimentality to a saggy stomach, and over-impressionability to, a, to an oversensitive white skin. Bulging muscles, a taut stomach, and a tough skin, I reasoned, would correspond respectively to an intrepid fighting spirit, the power of a dispassionate intellectual judgment, and a robust disposition. <laughs> yes! Yes, Shemai, yes! <laughs> so, so fucking good. Just one of my favorite quotes in the book. Just, just phenomenal, phenomenal work. Just that is that's gonna be like. I'm surprised I haven't seen that fucking quote pinned up on like Instagram, like male bodybuilding shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's just phenomenal. Be the change you want to see in the world, Levi. Yeah, yeah. Get really really into bodybuilding. Become an Instagram influencer and start posting this sort of stuff on there. 
<laughs> just some Mishima quotes. Just <laughs> Levi just becomes jacked Instagram influencer with just Mishima quotes the whole time. Mishima and Learn Sun Tzu. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I I see that quote you've you've just read out, and I'll raise you. Just fent. So, <laughs> as my resort to the steel had persistently suggested to me. The relationship of muscles to steel was one of interdependence, very similar, in fact, to the relationship between ourselves and the world. In short, the sense of existence by which strength cannot be strength without some object represents the basic relationship between ourselves and the world. It is precisely to that extent that we depend on the world and that I depended on steel. Just as muscles slowly increase their resemblance to steel, so we are gradually fashioned by the world. And although neither the steel nor the world can very well possess a sense of their own existence, idle analogy leads us unwittingly into the illusion that both do, in fact, possess such a sense. Otherwise, we feel ourselves powerless to check up on our own sense of existence, and Atlas, for example, would gradually come to regard the globe on his shoulders as something akin to himself. Thus, our sense of existence seeks after some object and can only live in a false world of relativity. It is true enough that when I lifted a certain weight of steel, I was able to believe in my own strength. I sweated and panted, struggling to obtain certain proof of my strength. At such times, the strength was mine, and equally, it was the steel's. My sense of existence was feeding on itself. It is just... It's such a metaphysical way of viewing getting bigger <laughs> muscles it's just <laughs> it's so it's perfect it just becomes uh, the metaphysics it. of getting shredded <laughs> <laughs> Jack Jack goes and gets like a fucking Mishima face tattoo <laughs> it's, 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 it's uh, the metaphysics of getting swole <laughs> it's just this book is that perfect blend of of real bizarreness, just the intense fascination with bodybuilding, but also being quite profound, like genuine profundity, talking about how, to a large extent, we define ourselves by what in the world pushes back upon our efforts. But it's all through the, the metaphor of bodybuilding. There's <laughs> just, just nothing like this. There's nothing so else good. like this. Who recommended this on the Discord? Um, Quite a few people A number of them uh, eh? So good Shout out to everybody who recommended this book on the Discord So fucking good Yeah <laughs> He now talks about how he's seeking out the ultimate sensation He never quite defines what the ultimate sensation is But he's searching for it This pinnacle of human experience and he decides that he's going to he's going to look for this ultimate experience in combat sports because importantly they have an an opponent who pushes back on you so as you were saying previously that when regarding the world or when regarding the steel these things give one a sense of existence by pushing back on your efforts however we do develop a sense that these things are in some way conscious, that the steel regards us in the same way that we regard the steel pushing back on each other. But this is an illusion. The steel's not actually aware of its existence. But in combat sports, what pushes back against you 
is a human. So it's another subjectivity. And he regards that as being deeply profound, that the thing pushing back on you and helping you define yourself and work out what you are, the fact that that is self-aware as well and undergoing the same process that you're going is very, very important. And so he says, For that which lay at the end of the flashing fist and beyond the blow of the bamboo sword was precisely what constituted the most certain proof of that invisible light given off by the muscles. It was an attempt to reach the ultimate sensation that lies just a hair's breadth beyond the reach of the senses. I should also say when he talks about the invisible light given off by the muscles, at a few points he talks about how muscles give off rays of light in the direction that they shall act in, almost these these rays of intention. <laughs> and as muscles become better trained and more aesthetic, these rays of light become finer and more direct. <laughs> You're talking about getting feathers. <laughs> feathers in his, in his glutes. <laughs> Get that fucking lower back Christmas tree, bro. <laughs> <laughs> So he talks about the opponent as this um, this crystallization of concrete reality. So uh, I'll, I'll read another quote. We can talk about it. The opponent and I dwelt in the same world. When I looked, the opponent was seen. When the opponent looked, I was seen. We faced each other, moreover, without any intermediary imagination, both belonging to the same world of action and strength, the world, that is, of being seen. The opponent was in no sense an idea, for although by climbing step by step up the ladder of verbal expression in pursuit of an idea, and by gazing intently at that idea, we may well succeed in blinding ourselves to the light. That idea will never gaze back at us. In a realm where every moment one's gaze is returned, one is never given time to express things in words. In order to express oneself, one needs to stand outside the world in question. Since that world as a whole never returns one's scrutiny, one is given time to look and to express at leisure what one has found, but one will never succeed in getting at the essence of a reality that returns one's gaze. He seems to view it as so profound, this, this state in which that which pushes back against you also regards you. I should also say, actually, because he mentioned imagination, he talks mm. about imagination mm. fairly disparagingly in this book. <laughs> I think he defines imagination as, as something sensuously self-referential, as an internal life cut off from the world or something that is not necessarily understandable by others because it purely refers to itself. And he's, he's searching for something de-individuated and universal. I wonder if he was into he might he might have been into like Zen Buddhism as well with those sorts of ideas. Um, yeah, really interesting. I really like that. Yeah, there's the silence, the silence of long exercise, like the mental silence that you can get. Yeah, swimming and swimming. Yeah. I think that's what he's to a large extent talking about. He just talks about it in a very poetic way in a very very thought through way i kind of wish he didn't commit suicide 
I wish he'd kept on writing, but then again, I mean, it makes it so fucking gangster, his story, doesn't it? <laughs> it does definitely. It elevates this book, and I think it's telling that when I when I read through this book and then learned that he, two years later, carried out basically what he said in this book he was going to do, I couldn't help but feel admiration that... He talks so much about constructing a beautiful <laughs> body and then destroying it. Fuck and yeah, then he bro. Went and Fuck fucking yeah. did it. And it really is yeah, bro. in that moment when I read it, there was an inescapable sense of of being impressed. I thought, man, he actually he actually followed through on it. <laughs> yeah. Profound. Yeah. Really profound. He walks he walks the talk. <laughs> So he talks about um, searching for this ultimate sensation with the opponent, which searches, which which sees you and prevents you from viewing the world in terms of thought, but only in terms of experience. He then talks about striking a blow against this opponent as a way that further draws you into or towards the ultimate experience. I'll, I'll read a quote. Oh, I, I should say, actually. So this quote comes after he describes the relationship between the consciousness and the body and how to find that point where the body and the consciousness first intersect. So he talks about how he, w- he would practice a skill, and in this case, kendo, to the point where... This skill penetrates the unconscious areas of the mind. He does it so often that it becomes unconscious. It's not something that he's thinking about doing any, anything. Uh, it's not saying he's thinking about doing anymore. And this allows the body to perform this action perfectly and automatically. And you can only perform an action perfectly and automatically when it has penetrated the unconscious mind. And this is the time when you can perform that skill to the highest level it can be performed at. So he's searching for this point at which a conscious activity is converted into an unconscious power. <laughs> so cool. And he, this, this finds him examining that point of striking a perfect blow against an opponent. So he thinks that this allowed him to see where that transformation took place. One's own blow, one's own strength creates a kind of hollow. A blow is successful if, at that instant, the opponent's body fits into that hollow in space and assumes a form precisely identical with it. How is it that a blow can be experienced in such a way? What makes a blow successful? Success comes when both the timing and placing of the blow are just right. But more than this, it happens when the choice of time and target, one's judgment, manages to catch the foe momentarily off guard. When one has an intuitive apprehension of that off-guard moment, a fraction of a second before it becomes perceptible to the senses. This apprehension is a quantity that is unknowable, even to the self, and is acquired through a process of long training. By the time the right moment is consciously perceptible, it is already too late. It is too late, in other words, when that which lurks in the space beyond the flashing fist and the tip of the sword has taken shape. By the moment it takes shape, it must already be snugly ensconced in that hollow in space that one has marked out and created. It is at this instant that victory in the fray is born. And I think what he's saying is that 
once you have trained a skill to the point where it becomes wholly unconscious, consciousness is always playing catch up with the body and intuition when this skill is being carried out. It intersects with unconsciousness when it becomes aware of that hollow that the unconscious has already made into which the opponent is to be fit. But once this is happening, the unconsciousness through intuition is already striking the opponent. So fucking good. It's such a fucking good way to be That's awesome. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> This made me want to take up some sort of martial art because I haven't done martial arts before. I'd quite like to do BJJ. The problem is I've heard just so fucking the number cool. of injuries you get from it is huge. Yeah, or find a different martial art, or just like don't do don't do one with sparring, um, or like with uh, minimal, like do do doing Muay Thai but not doing serious sparring would be good. But I think you only really get like yeah, these sorts of like kicks in the head by doing by doing the sparring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is yeah, like, that's the thing. You know, a whole thing. <laughs> so so good, so fucking good. It really, it's that it's that um, the balance between me go, wanting go for a run. to experience this sensation of the hollow that Mishima talks about, but also my aversion to blunt force trauma to the head. <laughs> <laughs> or like getting choked out. <laughs> yeah, look, getting choked out, that, like, I could deal with that. With BJJ, the main thing is apparently, like, you just get a bunch of joint injuries. And I do want to avoid that because that stops you from yeah. exercising in other areas as well. <laughs> yeah, there is. It's kind of, yeah, the art form <laughs> of causing joint injuries. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fucking good. Could you? I reckon Mishima would really like Khabib. Yeah, probably. Probably really like fucking. him. Could, that guy's just an animal. Fucking animal. Yeah, complete animal. What a what an animal. What an amazing. He and he had like a, a the warrior spirit as well when he was fighting. Yeah, like a lot of honor. <laughs> a lot of Can you imagine a lot of Machina dignity. going on the Joe Rogan podcast and talking to Joe oh, Rogan about fuck. kettlebell Do you workouts and martial arts Jack for like GPT six hours? or like a deep fake to like recreate <laughs> a, a Mishima like virtual clone and then have joe rogan interview that that would be fucking great this is why we need to bring people back from the dead just so we can bring mishima back to go on the joe rogan experience if there's recordings of him talking <laughs> get like there's enough talk writing dead, that talked out for hours about, about cold showers and choking people out <laughs> the greatest gym bro podcast of all time <laughs> <laughs> that would just be well no you'd have to bring back Mishima and Ziz so that they could both be on the Joe Rogan experience together <laughs> amazing amazing um did you want to talk about death yeah death comes up a lot there is this thing with Mishima where he seems to regard something as more beautiful the more finite it is and as it approaches its moment of absolute finitude, it becomes more beautiful. 
So both finitude is a necessary precondition for beauty and something that intensifies Scarcity. it the more acute this finitude is. I agree. That's I've got why a quote here actually so about, about how the beauty of the body is in large part a function of its finitude. So he says, The body carries quite sufficient persuasion to destroy the comic aura that surrounds an excessive self-awareness. For though a fine body may be tragic, there is in it no trace of the comic. The thing that ultimately saves the flesh from being ridiculous is the element of death that resides in the healthy, vigorous body. It is this, I realised, that sustains the dignity of the flesh. How comic would one find the gaiety and elegance of the bullfighter were his trade entirely divorced from associations of death? So when you see even the most aesthetic physiques, he seems to be saying that it is in large part the knowledge that those physiques are finite that makes them beautiful. I also love here how he's he's taking something as ridiculous as bodybuilding, because bodybuilding is fundamentally absurd, and saying, no, there is no ridiculousness here. There is nothing in bodybuilding that is comic because every bodybuilder is mortal, and that mortality makes their physiques more beautiful and completely unridiculous. Yeah, it's the tragedy of it. <laughs> you're, you're creating something, you're sculpting your body into a beautiful physique, but at the end of the day, it's finite, it's impermanent, and it's going to die. <laughs> but at it's least the tragedy it will die of Ronnie It is the tragedy of Ronnie Coleman. We should, we really should have just, uh, Ronnie Coleman should have died, but and we should have like uh, taxidermied him or something, or like uh, preserved his body just at peak, at his peak. The king. For everybody to see what what a uh, a living king looks like for all eternity. <laughs> he could be like... Yeah, they should Aaron replace Lennon. Lennon's body in Red Square with that of... <laughs> with Ronnie Coleman. Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely need a bigger viewing platform. <laughs> Lennon wasn't known for his gains, was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't 136 kilograms. He wasn't 135 kilos of peak aesthetics. <laughs> Two percent body fat. <laughs> I think there's an interview where Ronnie Coleman claims to have had a negative percentage body fat. A negative body like, what fat. What the fuck are you talking yeah. about? Two <laughs> percent like, is impressive enough without it. You had to just make shit up. Negative two percent, bro. <laughs> <laughs> My, the the so place where my good. fat would be is a negative space in existence. <laughs> Nature abhors <laughs> a vacuum, except in, my, except in my fat cells. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. He's got this good quote about um, hero worship, which he says is good, and that the people who mock hero worship <laughs> are all out of shape. And I, <laughs> I remember this is such a good part of this. So, such a good quote. So good. Here I felt I was gaining a clue to the to an inner understanding of the cult of the hero. The cynicism that regards all hero worship as comical is always shadowed by a sense of physical inferiority. Invariably, it is the man who believes himself to be physically lacking in heroic attributes who speaks mockingly of the hero. And when he does so, how dishonest is it that his phraseology, partaking ostensibly of a logic so universal and general, should not, 
or at least should be assumed by the general public not to, give any clue to his physical characteristics. I have yet to hear hero worship mocked by a man endowed with what might justly be called heroic physical attributes. Facile cynicism, invariably, is related to feeble muscles or obesity, while the cult of the hero and a mighty nihilism are always related to a mighty body and well-tempered muscles. For the cult of the hero is, ultimately, the basic principle of the body, and in the long run is intimately involved with the contrast between the robustness of the body and the destruction that is death. <laughs> Drops the just... fucking mic. Drops the mic. One of the greatest lines. That is one of the greatest quotes in the entire book. It's phenomenal. <laughs> He's basically saying, if you don't agree with me, you're fat. Yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> you a beta. You don't have a heroic physique <laughs> if, you... if you don't agree with me. Alpha's love... Alpha gym rats love fucking heroic physiques. <laughs> and then all this other fucking beta no-gain little bitches. <laughs> they're just... Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know how to hero worship. <laughs> I bet Zoo's read Mishima. Oh, I, I don't know if Ziz could read, man. <laughs> Being, being an Ziz, asshole. Well, no, he probably did. <laughs> okay, so Ziz and Mishima he, he are examples of convergent evolution. So Mishima <laughs> grew up, he he learned the ways of understanding the world through an aesthetic physique without words. No, so he Jack, had to work so you're out. misapprehending. Ziz, Ziz achieved these same insights through aesthetics. He achieved the same insights through being wheeled around and filmed shirtless in a shopping trolley through the Sydney CBD at like <laughs> 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night, <laughs> shouting at people if they were miring or not. That's how Ziz achieved bro? these you insights. You miring, bro? See, I think that you're you're on They're different avenues. You're kind of heading in truth. the correct direction. That I would go a little bit further and say that because there is a universality to a perfectly sculpted male physique that in fact the convergence comes from the physical realization of the platonic form of mm, pure mm, aesthetics mm. and so anybody who pursues <laughs> that will naturally converge upon these these insights these metaphysical insights about the relationship between the body exactly it's like a water perfection <laughs> It's it's like water flowing downhill. It ultimately you have to converge on the same point. Yeah, it's like pure energy. He's got this section so the universe. Yeah, exactly. It's the lowest energetic state. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a law of the universe. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's like, it's like entropy is always physique. increasing. It's just like uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the aesthetics is Ziz. always increasing. <laughs> the singularity <laughs> at Ziz. The fourth law of thermodynamics. <laughs> aesthetics is always increasing. <laughs> aesthetics is always increasing. <laughs> like exponentially towards some like infinity point, at which point you just have like <laughs> Ronnie Coleman. <laughs> the singularity of aesthetics. <laughs> it bec- you cannot predict what will happen once aesthetics become infinite. <laughs> so all of, all, all of this discussion, <laughs> it, 
That's exactly. That's when negative. That's, that's, that's when body count becomes negative. <laughs> Roddy, Roddy Coleman wasn't talking shit. He wasn't talking about him out of his ass. He'd actually seen. He was the describing through breaking the through aesthetics. He saw the future. What would happen at the singularity? That body fat percentages would become negative. You know, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. In the future, every every dude is going to <laughs> look like look like Ronnie Coleman. Was that as, as the entire Gibson human civilization, yeah, the entire human civilization just like allocates all resources towards making perfect male physiques. <laughs> Again, I think this is just like at the end of the day, we become space marines. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. The problem with space marines, though, is they've got all that power armor covering up the male physique. So can we can we have still, naked like space there, there's marines? There's still a way to go. Naked space marines before the Imperium of Man can spread the <laughs> ideal male physique and aesthetics <laughs> the to the Imperium entire of Man, led by Ronnie Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie Coleman is the emperor of mankind. <laughs> Imprisoned on his imprisoned on his throne because he had a bunch <laughs> because of because he's fucking collapsed surgery. his knees and he's and he's like he's like his fucking liver is given way. <laughs> he's like hooked up. He's hooked up to all this like IV shit. <laughs> try to keep him alive. Try to keep his aesthetics alive. He's just being pumped full of like entirety, pig the testosterone. The entirety of Warhammer forty k law is actually. A metaphor for Ronnie Coleman guiding humanity towards perfect aesthetics. <laughs> the infinity point of perfect aesthetics and negative body fat percentage. <laughs> Gee, I bet listeners who don't know who Ronnie Coleman is are really enjoying this episode. Go, go, go and look up Ronnie Coleman. Just go and search for pictures of Ronnie Coleman. This you know what we're talking about. Fucking amazing, amazing. <laughs> just a freak. <laughs> he, just, he just looks like a porterhouse steak. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he just looks like a portaloo. He just looks like a big fucking square. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's basically a rectangle. He's a human rectangle. <laughs> he looks like a porterhouse steak. <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. So talks about all of this was taking place in the context of Mishima talking about the search for the ultimate sensation. And uh, this is kind of this is the structure of the book. He's always juggling about three or four different thoughts at once and weaving them in with each other and evolving them over time and description describing his evolving perception of these things over time. So all of this talk about hero worship achieving beautiful aesthetics and using that as a way to understand death the opponent and the steel pushing back on you and that allowing you to understand your own existence all of this was in the context of him trying to discover the ultimate sensation but he then says the ultimate sensation is not to be found even in victory over an opponent because every victory over an opponent is fleeting an insipid sensation because behind every opponent is death. And he talks about how in fighting opponents, in martial arts, in sparring, he came to see without words that behind the opponent always stood death. And death will always be victorious over you. It's, and therein lies much of the tragedy and the beauty 
of an aesthetic physique being put into action that no matter what you do, no matter how aesthetic you are, no matter how well trained and how perfect your blows against an opponent are, you will always die. So I, I quote, This ultimate sensation then must have something to do with death and beauty. Yet the thing that we sense in the finest sculpture, as in the bronze charioteer of Delphi, where the glory, the pride, and the shyness reflected in the moment of victory are given faithful immortality, is the swift approach of the spectre of death just on the other side of the victor. At the same time, by showing us symbolically the limits of spatiality in the art of sculpture, he intimates that nothing but decline lies beyond the greatest human glory. The sculptor in his, the sculptor in his arrogance has taught to capture life only at its supreme moment. If the solemnity and dignity of the body arise solely from the element of mortality that lurks within it, then the road that leads to death, I reasoned, must have some private path connecting with pain, suffering, and the continuing consciousness that is proof of life. And I could not help, but I could not help feeling that if there were some incident in which violent death pangs and, a well and well-developed muscles were skillfully combined, it could only occur in response to the aesthetic demands of destiny. So, in some sense, destiny has aesthetic demands requiring a beautiful body to be cut down in its prime. And as the book goes on, he talks more and more about this. And now in hindsight, that we know he built a beautiful physique and then committed ritual suicide. It, <laughs> he, he really tried it. He, he really lived the bizarreness that he's written into Sun and Steel. So good. I've got another quote on death yeah. that I really like and beauty and, and aesthetics. It says, what difference there might be... Sorry, may I... Okay, no, no, I'll take this. Uh, what difference there might be resolves itself into the presence nor absence or absence of the idea of honour, which regards death as, quote, something to be seen, end quote, and the presence or absence of the formal aesthetic of death that goes with it. In other words, the tragic nature of the approach to death and the beauty of the body going to its doom. Thus, where a beautiful death is concerned, men are condemned to inequalities and degrees of fortune commensurate with the inequalities and degrees of fortune bestowed on them by fate at their birth. Though this inequality is obscured nowadays by the fact that modern man is almost devoid of the desire of the ancient Greeks to live beautifully and die beautifully. I, uh, I really like that bit because like <laughs> in a weird way, like even if you don't think that it's like, you don't agree with the aesthetic stuff. Like he raises this really interesting point around essentially like uh, the quality of one's death being really important. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very Japanese, I suppose. Get like from, I mean, it's not like I know a huge amount about Japanese culture, but like at least from that sort of Imperial Japanese, like post-war or like world war two post-war era of like um, there being, like a, a warrior way to die, you know, dying with honor, which is definitely not a thing in like our society. <laughs> At least not anymore. I don't no. know. <laughs> We've gone to the other extreme. So quite recently, my granddad died and it was not a good death. He had no. pretty advanced dementia. 
So I couldn't remember any of our names. By the end, like, couldn't really move. Was in a lot of pain, so he was pretty heavily sedated with opiates. He was in a nursing home. Like, it was it was such a humiliating death that Degrading. a once proud man just faded away like that. It was just it was truly humiliating. Yeah, and you're And so when like I such read an, an interesting person. Yeah, but when I when I read this, I thought of that, and I'm not saying okay, go and commit ritual suicide in your 40s <laughs> like I think Mishima did but I think there's something to not sticking around too long like of, of being able to draw a line under your life and die and be be killed either by yourself or by someone else rather than just disintegrate slowly yeah almost it's also it's like it's almost becoming um well, I don't know, like, had a similar experience with my stepfather, <laughs> like, uh, dying of, uh, mm. of, like, metastatic lung cancer when his, like, uh, his, his brain was, like, being eaten by the cancer. <laughs> it's like, you see their yeah. personality fade, you know, like, in front of your eyes. It's like, <laughs> it's like they're a body, but they're dying. It's like they're, they're a walking corpse or something. It's really, it's, like, it's truly, like, profoundly strange experience to talk to somebody who's, who's going through that. Um, yeah. And then at some point it's just, it's more like it's, it's a body with like a sort of barely functional nervous system. And I just think like, yeah, like as you said, it's such a degrading way or potentially humiliating way to die. As you think like, well, maybe, maybe there is something to be said about like, whether it's heroic death or like, or even just dying on one's own terms. <laughs> even if that's something like, um, like uh, assisted suicide or something. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It made me think about that a lot. About yeah. whether, you know, I, I've def I haven't made any decisions yet. But whether, unless there are major changes made to, to say, longevity medicine or something yeah, like that, yeah. whether once I reach the age of eighty, that's when I, I don't know, lethally yeah. overdose on morphine or something I, like I that. If there's no the access to euthanasia, like, uh, my girlfriend's grandmother is like ninety something, and she's like. <laughs> She's like so lucid, man. She's fucking got an attitude, man. She does the gardening and stuff, you know. So I don't know. I guess it depends how you're tracking, right? Like some people just magically <laughs> just live for ages and <laughs> are healthy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I guess it is just it's you're you're playing the low, Yeah, yeah. Low but, chance of that happening. It's very rare. <laughs> yeah, I'd say more likely than not, if you stick around into your 90s it's just yeah 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 most people not having fun by that point so are there any other yeah, major, so, um yeah we super fucking yeah fucking there yeah, proper proper full philosophical conversation after talking about the imperium of man led by ronnie coleman just that is that. the beauty of sun and steel is that, that is the beauty of book club from hell philosophy and bodybuilding <laughs> <laughs> I, un I unironically love this book <laughs> I really like this book as well I want to read more Mishima now um, Are there any other yeah, yep. topics that you wanted to cover? I don't Yeah, I don't know so there's, there's more any... on death He's got this beautiful quote actually Because he's he started trying to make a new style of writing based on his 
his discoveries of the body. And he's got this gorgeous quote where he says, my ideal style would have the grave beauty of polished wood in the entrance hall of a samurai mansion on a winter's day. That is just, that is so aesthetic. It's just mwah, aesthetic. <laughs> Fuck yes. Fuck yes, Mishima. Fuck yes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more of this book because it's really dense and it's uh, bursting with really, really vivid metaphors and that sort of thing. Again, all tying back to the relationship between death, aesthetic physiques, art and life. It's It's hard to really, really sum up this book. It's also how it's written. There are so many things happening at once that... I, I don't feel like I can really convey the experience of reading this book in a podcast. Yeah, it's also just excellent writing. Like he's, an, he's a fantastic writer. This is obviously a strange thing to write about, but, yeah, I mean, he's such a beautiful... Like, he's, his writing is very beautiful. And so um, if nothing else, just, like, reading it for, like, the moments of, like, uh, lucid and beautiful prose is very good. That's why I, I want to read his other books. Some of his other, at least one of his other books. Mm. But I love that it's dedicated. How about to we talk about at least the, to body the kamikaze pilots? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he goes. He went and read a bunch of letters from World War Two Japanese kamikaze pilots before they went on their final mission. So for those for those who don't know. Japan during the Second World War had a core of people who would basically just fly planes into American naval vessels. So these people trained to have a single mission in which they would definitely die. And he read a, a bunch of their letters and found them deeply, deeply profound. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll dig up the quote. Here we go. So, I'll read the quote. One letter that still remains very vivid in my mind was written in pencil on a piece of rice paper in a youthful, almost careless scribble. If my memory is not mistaken, it was to the following effect and broke off abruptly in just this fashion. At the moment, I am full of life, my whole body overflowing with youth and strength. It seems impossible that I shall be dead in three hours' time, and yet... When someone seeks to tell the truth, words always falter in this way. I can almost see him now, fumbling for words, not from shyness, nor from fear, for the naked truth inevitably produces this verbal stumbling, but rather as a sign of a certain rough quality about truth itself. The young man in question had no long, drawn-out void left in which to await the absolute, nor did he have time to wind things up with words in a leisurely way. As he hurtled towards death, his final everyday phrases seized on a moment when the feeling for life, like chloroform in the strange headiness it produces, had temporarily benumbed his spirit's awareness of the end, and, like a well-loved dog leaping up at its master, came rushing out upon him, only to be dashed rudely aside. The neater letters, on the other hand, with their pithy phrases about duty to one's fatherland, destroying the enemy, eternal right, and the identity of life and death, 
obviously selected what were considered to be the most impressive, the most noble, from among a large number of ready-made concepts and clearly revealed a determination by eliminating anything in the way of personal psychology to identify the self with the splendid words chosen. And this he goes on to say, more than any other words, and despite the ambiguity of their sense and content, they were filled with a glory not of this world. Their very impersonality and monumentality demanded the strict elimination of individuality and spurned the construction of moments based on personal action. And this is really interesting. So he contrasts the letter written by a person suddenly in the, the three hours preceding their death with the letters written by people who had time to think about their death and time to plan out their final letters. And it ties into something he discusses earlier in the book where he talks about the de-individualizing nature of a uniform, how he says that muscles de-individualize the mind. They allow the mind to view the world in a way that is not reflexive or interiorly directed, but something that just experiences the senses. And similarly, a uniform de-individualizes muscles. It covers a body and makes that body only... So he talks about it in the, in the context of war. It makes that body, which would otherwise be an individual, into a combatant. So someone whose individuality has been reduced to simply that of a combatant. And he then contrasts that to the people to the kamikaze pilots who had time to consider what was in their letters. And he's saying that they use all the same phrases about duty to the fatherland and glory, heroic deaths. And in writing those things, they de-individuate and become something more monumental than if they'd written about their interior lives. And in that sense, these phrases that are selected from a, a predetermined pool have that same effect of de-individualization upon a person as a uniform does. He gets really, really into de-individualization. Yeah, I think it's it's like uh, it's it's really about um almost like self-transcendence. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I do that, think yeah. it is almost like the Evolian idea of uh, ontological transformation. Obviously, it's not transforming into <laughs> like a. Uh, like a platonic realm of pure whatever <laughs> evolian realm of uh of being yeah. but it's it is it is about that same sort of idea of like transforming oneself be through uh <clears throat> physical exertion or, or or whatever or like collectivizing yourself in like the concepts that you use to justify your uh, kamikaze mission these things are uh what what would you call it sublimation <laughs> or like yeah, self-obliteration yeah. or something like that. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? How about I close, unless you have more you want to add, because there, like, there's no, no, so much I'm, in this book. It's only it's only 100 pages, but there is so much more we could talk about. It's very about. dense. And I, I, I close this out with the... do any more justice to it other than to say, like, read it yourself. But yeah, why don't you close yeah, it out? I'd read it, because we can't, or at least I can't convey the experience of reading this. No, I can't. So, so. <laughs> he's got like he's got a poem and a short section in the epilogue about flying in an F one hundred four fighter jet, but the end of the of the Sun and Steel book, 
goes as follows. He's describing a grueling group run in winter in the morning and watching the sunrise. The pounding of the heart communicated itself to the group. We shared the same swift pulse. Self-awareness by now was as remote as the distant rumour of the town. I belonged to them, they belonged to me. The two formed an unmistakable us. To belong. What more intense form of existence could there be? Our small circle of oneness was a means to a vision of that vast, dimly gleaming circle of oneness. And, all the while foreseeing that this imitation of tragedy was, in the same way as my own narrow happiness, condemned to vanish with the wind, to resolve itself into nothing more than muscles that simply existed, I had a vision where something that, if I were alone, would have resolved back into muscles and words, was held fast by the power of the group and led me away to a far land whence there would be no return. It was, perhaps, the beginning of my placing reliance on others, a reliance that was mutual, and each of us, by committing himself to this immeasurable power, belonged to the whole. In this way, the group for me had come to represent a bridge, a bridge that once crossed left no means of return. And it's like he's... He's describing going on a run with your friends, but just in the most profound way. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it is, yeah. Ultimate gym, bro. It, this is a very aesthetic book. <laughs> so Final when thoughts? we close these episodes out, we always ask the question, would you recommend this? Yeah. I think it's pretty clear what my views on this are. I'd yeah, recommend fuck it, this. Yeah, read it. <laughs> to basically anyone, unless it's the sort of person who's morbidly opposed to exercise. But even then, this book might do them a bit of good. Um, I would... Is it... Who would I not recommend it to? I don't know. I feel like I'd recommend it to pretty much anyway. Like, give it a read. It's really weird. It's, got, it's beautiful. Really short. Quite short, yeah. Fascinating. Bizarre. Mikey pumped well to go written. to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, instead of blasting those uh, those Ronnie Coleman hard style motivation videos on YouTube to get yourself jacked up for the gym, instead <laughs> of putting David pre-workout poison into your body, just read excerpts of Sun and Steel. <laughs> so good. Yeah, fantastic book. So what have we got coming up next episode? That's a great question. What is our next uh, book? We're reading Penty Linkler, Linkler at the moment, Can Life Prevail? I'm enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. We're also reading Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, but that's taking yeah, a lot. Yeah, I'm enjoying few, that. That's going to be a few weeks. Less. Just it's so fucking long. <laughs> it's extremely, extremely long book. So we've got Can Life Prevail coming up, uh, the, the Mother Plane by Aliyah Muhammad. <laughs> by Aliyah uh, Muhammad, that's right. <laughs> Um, and then uh, and then hopefully we'll be up to Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, so we've got a couple of good books coming out. Oh, and then we're going to do some Yarvin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's Weird. right. Yeah, we need to Weird. dig up. We need to collect Yarvin articles that would be worth worth doing because he keeps saying he's going to publish a book of his favourite blog posts, but he never gets around to it. <laughs> yeah. All right, awesome. We'll look forward to... Uh, well, and then, like, there's some other ones, but those are the ones that we're doing together. Cool. Awesome. Should we, yeah. uh, should we close, uh, close it out? Yeah, that's it. That's all from me. That's it. Yeah. Read this book. Yeah, give it a go. It's fine. Read this book and go to the gym. <laughs> Read this book at the gym, between yeah. sets. Yeah, and then even when you're doing the sets, like, listen to it on audiobook. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Just yeah. blush yourself. Or memorize quotes. Memorize the book. <laughs> memorize the book to the point where it crosses from the conscious into the unconscious mind and you can recite it to the greatest of your ability. And you just so you like can self-transcend while you're doing in, in squats your sleep. by reciting <laughs> reciting passages from Sun and Steel at a rate that does not allow the conscious mind to interfere with the recita- the recitation of these quotes. <laughs> yes, thumbs up. All right, thank you for listening. Shout out to uh Thanks for listening. F Gardner. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Shout out to F Gardner.